0: grab a Bible and just have it ready this morning uh, to turn to a number of passages. Normally we preach through uh, books or specific passages in the Bible. We've been in James most recently, Uh, but every once in a while we break from that pattern to look at a number of passages in the Scriptures uh, to teach you and equip you on a particular topic. And uh, the topic this morning is going to be kind of laying a theological foundation for ministry to children in the home and in the local church. And I've titled it, Spreading God's Glory to the Next Generation Together. So let me pray before we get started. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, this time together. Uh, I thank you for the the songs that we just sung, the the scripture passages uh, we just read uh, that speak of heralding your goodness and your saving acts to the coming generations, uh, that they might place their hope in you and that they might ultimately join us in the new heaven and the new earth celebrating Your glory and one marveling at Your glory for all that You have done for us and um, all that You are for us in Christ. Um, please use this to compel us to love our children well as parents and as a local church together. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, I want us to to look at a theology for ministry to children, and we're going to tackle this subject for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, it's usually only the people who are teaching in the Dig Children's Ministry that really get... Uh, a lot of this theology in their, in their training and whatnot, but we, we desire that the whole church hear it and be on the same page. And since we're kicking off Discipleship Hour next week with, along with that, the, the dig Children's Ministry, it's a good time to work through these truths together. Moreover, we have a number of new folks uh, coming into our, our church and who have come into our church over time. And, and there, some of you are less familiar with our vision for children's ministry here, so it's good that we all hear from the Bible together and see what the Lord's will is for our children, why we do what we do as a church, and what some of our ministry to them looks like. And later, Michael Sanks is going to come uh, speak to us uh, about the DIG ministry in particular. Another reason is that I'm simply thankful for all of those uh, for, for all of you who have served in, uh, the ch- served our children over the years, who've served in DIG and Nursery and VBS, uh, who've come alongside us parents during very hard weeks and, and walked with us even in our own homes um, and valued our children, I'm thankful for mothers who labor hard every day for long hours. And I'm thankful for the teachers and the law enforcement officials in this church who are also serving children outside these walls. Uh, This sermon is just one big thank you and affirmation of what you're already uh, doing there. And then finally, uh, the rebellious world around us continues to devalue children and has set an agenda for our children that is Christless and corrupting. Uh, In the Bible, it was Pharaoh or a Herod that was killing babies in order to protect their throne. Um, We also see in the Bible that it was nations sacrificing their children to false gods and idols. It was entire communities who ignored the orphan and looked down on children as unimportant The rebellious world that we live in still devalues children. We see it still in things like abortion and abuse and neglect. We see it in entire communities of people who refuse to care for the orphan because they're too busy building their portfolios. We see it in those who turn away children seeking refuge from unstable and life Threatening situations, we even see it among people who put themselves above serving children. Moreover, the rebellious world has an explicit agenda to corrupt our children's thinking. And one of the most pointed places that I've seen this recently is in the public education system. Now, what I'm about to disclose isn't to say that you should not put your kids in public school. I am thankful that some of you do have your kids in public school, and we need to learn how to befriend this community as well and bring the gospel into their lives. I'm simply bringing this up as an example of how the world does have an explicit moral agenda for our children. So while I can't speak for every institution, I can say that many school districts across the country Austin ISD, and several in Houston as well, uh, already, are adopting a moral vision like the one promoted by the Human Rights Campaign. And you can read it for yourself at the website, WelcomingSchools.org, if you want to, WelcomingSchools.org. But essentially, this organization exists to train school districts to embrace family diversity, create LGBTQ-inclusive schools, and support transgender and gender-expansive students. So they're essentially training institutions to indoctrinate our children with a false vision of human sexuality and gender. They're even writing children's books, like I Am Jazz, the description of which says this, From the time she was two years old, Jazz knew that she had a girl's brain in a boy's body. So this is a children's book that is being distributed in the public school system. Now, inner wrestling of this sort may very well be genuine, especially in a broken world, And when people have broken minds, and we need to listen, and we need to show compassion towards children in this state, but to affirm that wrestling against God's good design instead of pointing them to their value as image bearers, and the redemption of the whole person in Christ is not loving, it is destructive, and it is enslaving. The world has an agenda to confuse and to corrupt our children on what it means to be human and to be created unique in God's image. My question to you is, do we have an agenda? Do we have an agenda, and is that agenda rooted in God's Word? We must teach our children of their Creator's agenda for them, to find their everlasting joy in Him through Jesus Christ. So those are a few reasons why we're talking about a theology for ministry to children. So where should we begin this theology? Let's begin where the Bible begins, at creation, in Genesis 1. You can go there with me and look at this truth together. God spreads His glory through image bearers, reflecting His character when they know him, enjoy him, love him, and obey him. God spreads his glory through image bearers reflecting his character. When they know him, enjoy him, love him, and obey him. So Genesis 1 teaches us that God created the universe, and on the sixth day, he created man and woman in his image. Genesis 1, look at verse 27 and 28. So part of being made in God's image is for male and female to represent and to reflect God's rule through their rule over the earth, through their dominion over the created order. God governs the world in righteousness and generosity order and peace, we represent Him, male and female alike, when we rule alongside each other in righteousness and generosity and order and peace. We reflect what God is like. Uh, we see this in other places coming out, like Matthew five sixteen, where our good deeds shine like a light pointing people to God's character and worth. Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Also, when we, uh, when, when we look at God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, become, when we look at his, the, uh, God's eternal Son taking on human flesh, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, In His humanity, Jesus tells the whole story. He, he reveals everything about God perfectly. He is the image of God in all of its perfection. So the best way for us to learn what it means to be an image bearer is not simply to compare ourselves to how we're different from animals. You will fall short every time in in, in understanding the fullness of what it means to be created in God's image if that's where you stop. We must go to Jesus. We must look at Jesus because He is the image of God in all of its perfection. Insofar as we live like Jesus, we too become many reflectors of what God is like. We tell, the whole, we tell the world a story of how great and glorious and worthy God is. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful, and multiply, have children, so that the earth would be full of His image-bearers reflecting the glory of God. This is eventually what the new heavens and the new earth will be like when we see Jesus face to face and we become like Him. It will be a place full of image-bearers reflecting the glory of God in all that they say, do, think, and feel. Every child comes into the world as God's image-bearer. God made and fashioned every child in this way. Therefore, children have value as God's image-bearers. We see that they come into the world bearing God's image. When we see in Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3, that Adam is made in God's likeness and he passes on that image to the next generation. God makes and fashion children in His image. Therefore, they have value as God's image bearers and incredible potential to reflect God's character with their lives and thus spread His glory. Children will only flourish when they understand why they exist and what their every breath is for. They exist because God made them and they breathe to relate to their Maker and enjoy His presence and to reflect His character in all that they do with their lives. And we must help them know who they are as image bearers. A second truth I want to look at is this. Every generation is born in sin influenced by a corrupt world system and therefore in desperate need of the gospel. Every generation is born in sin, influenced by a corrupt world system and therefore in desperate need of the gospel. So we're shifting now from what the creation should be, what it ought to be, to the reality of life on this side of Adam's rebellion. Every child born into the world on this side of Genesis 3 still bears God's image. But sin seriously perverts that image. We're not just mankind, we're mankind in revolt. Our ability to reflect God's character properly is lacking. Uh, Romans 5.12 speaks of this bondage. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So children, just like old people, die because of sin inherited from Adam. Adam. Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then if you look at Romans 1.30, one of the list of vices against which the wrath of God is coming is disobedience to parents. So children enter the world rebellious. You don't don't have to teach children to be selfish. Children are also surrounded by a corrupt world system. 1 John 5, 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 2 says that apart from God's grace, we will follow that evil one. In this world. So children come into the world with rebellion inside and surrounded by rebellion outside, and they'll be held accountable according to what they know is true and right. And on top of that, the book of Proverbs and a couple of instances in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty, for example, or Hebrews 5, 12 and 13. They show that children lack the maturity to discern good from evil they lack the maturity to discern what is wise from what is foolish what is beautiful and what is wretched what is truth and what is a lie that's not something we criticize them for or look down on them for it's just something we patiently help them out of over time in the same way that God patiently led us out of our ignorance. So a lot is against children. Their only hope for rescue is the same as our only hope for rescue. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's our fighter, work, our fighter verse this week? Romans 1, 16, Do you know it? Anybody? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the gospel, the good news, the word of Christ that saves adults as well as children from their bondage to sin and from their attraction to the evil world. It is the gospel that opens our eyes to truth, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we know, if, if we know the desperate need that children have for the gospel, because that's our need too, and if we know as they grow up and mature that they're becoming more and more accountable before God for what they know, and that the gospel is the only hope for deliverance from judgment, then we should be wholly involved in bringing it into their lives. Even from day one, we can begin praying that God would protect them from the corruption in the world and that He would give them life in Christ through the gospel. Far be it from us to win our neighbors afar while neglecting the children right in front of us. We must labor to save both our nations from afar and the children God has given to us. Which leads us to a third truth. Children have the intellectual capacity to understand God's saving acts in Christ, and God is able to save children. Children have the intellectual capacity to understand God's saving acts in Christ, and God is able to save children. Uh, Take Exodus 12, verse 26, for example. This is uh, just before God rescues His people from Egypt. He's teaching them about the Passover, and He says this, When your children say to you, What do you mean by this Passover service? You shall say, "It is the Lord's, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses." What's the assumption here? The assumption is that if a child is old enough to ask about the Passover, he's old enough to understand what the Passover means. They can understand God's judgment on Egypt and God's undeserved mercy toward Israel. Children can understand what it means to hide themselves in the blood to escape God's judgment. So the Passover became an object lesson for the coming generation. And we can think of other things like, for example, the metaphors the Bible uses to describe God. Proverbs 18:10 for example, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and he is safe. Any kid that builds towers for his army men to run into knows what it means to run into a safe place. The proverb points them to where they should find their safety. Or take Jesus' words, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew seven twenty four. Kids can understand what this means just from their own basic experience with sand and rock. Well, what about the assumption that's behind Psalm 78, verses 2 and 3? Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in a parable... I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done, the whole point being, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And then we actually see this pattern playing out in the life of uh, Timothy. Uh, Timothy, the, Paul's, one of Paul's uh, disciples and companions in, in, in the gospel. We learn from 2 Timothy 1 5 about the faithfulness of Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We don't hear too much about Timothy's dad, except that he was a Greek. But these two women apparently taught the Bible to Timothy throughout his childhood. Second Timothy 3:15. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not necessarily our teaching, per se, that saves children. It's the Word of God that saves children, just like it saves adults which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible assumes that children can understand key things about the Lord and how He saves, and that these things can make them wise for salvation. Even if they still lack saving faith and resist God right now, what we want to do is harness every bit of their God-given potential their god-given capacity to understand the scriptures so that through understanding God more and more they will trust in him lord willing romans 10:17 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ acts chapter 2 verse 39 also says this about the promise of forgiveness and the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. In other words, grace doesn't show preference for ethnicity or age. He commands all people, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what, are, no matter what generation, to repent and believe in the gospel. And many times it seems that God is pleased to save children so that they believe and they are baptized and they become participants in His church. You can even see this, for example, in the way that Paul is instructing the whole church and he's giving commands to children sitting down in the pews. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord, children. Also, we even see that Zechariah 8.5, we looked at that a while back. In the coming kingdom, the streets will be full of children playing. Fourth, parents have a great responsibility with the assistance of the whole church to declare God's glory to the next generation. Parents have a great responsibility with the assistance of the whole church to declare God's glory to the next generation. This is true whether we're talking about the old covenant people, Israel, or the new covenant people, the church. God commissions parents with the primary responsibility for the spiritual nurture of their children One example from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." The point is that parents should be so full of God's word that they're talking to their children about it all the time. It's not something we wait for others to teach them on Sunday. It's something our hearts, it's something on our hearts all the time when you rise, when you lie down, and every moment in between. That's the point of those things. That's the way Hebrew works. And our prayer is that through our testimony of the Lord and His grace, our children will set their hope in God. Okay, Fathers, this privilege and responsibility lays especially on us. Fathers. Proverbs also includes mother's instructions as well. Proverbs 1.8, for example. But fathers lead out. Ephesians 6.4 places the emphasis here. Fathers Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as best we can, and by the grace given to us, we help children value Christ and His kingdom. Again, only God can save. Salvation is of the Lord, but He also uses means. And the parents, especially the fathers, are the means of preaching the gospel to children. The primary responsibility to teach the next generation falls on parents. Thankfully, the Scriptures show us that whatever the Lord demands of parents, the Lord also graciously provides. So His provision in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus unites us to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we lack nothing as parents. I mean, get this. You, through Christ, you have a relationship with the Father of all fathers. The best parent. And you, by, through your communion with Him, learn and grow to reflect Him. Ephesians 6, 4, if you you look at the context, so that's the place where I just read about fathers not provoking your children to wrath, but raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that falls within a much greater context of having our image renewed in Christ. That image I said that we had in creation and is perverted through the fall, we get it renewed when we're united to Jesus. Ephesians 4.24, that's the new self we're putting on. And then Ephesians 5.18, we're being filled with God's Spirit before He gets into the household stuff. So, we cannot do this well on our own. We need God renewing us and filling us. And He's pleased to give it through Christ. And even more, part of God's gracious plan through script, throughout Scripture is is also to unite his faithful ones to a whole family of redeemed people. Jesus says that when we leave our selfish ambitions to follow him, Mark ten thirty, we gain all kinds of brothers, sisters, mothers, and children. Galatians six two says that we should bear one another's burdens. Not that the children are burdens, but we have burdens that we have as a family when we're caring for them, and we need to step in for one another. Colossians 3.16 says that we are to admonish one another in the Word of Christ. I need you to rebuke me if I'm not obeying Ephesians 6.4, and I'm treating my children harshly. We must come alongside each other to help parents raise children in the Lord's ways. I think this is part of what 1 Corinthians 7.14 is all about. Where he says he's dealing with mixed marriages, uh, believer and unbeliever. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Children of believing parents Have full access to the gospel witness and the influence of God's people. That doesn't mean they're automatically saved or that we should baptize them. But they do benefit from the incredible blessings of God's people caring for them. Now, if they do believe, we will baptize them. But the church has a very significant role in influencing them. What about children who get saved? But don't have Christian parents? What about children who come to know Christ but don't have a ride to dig children's ministry? What about children who love Jesus but don't have a father or mother to shepherd them? Is it not the place of the church to provide the family that they lack? Is it not the place of the church to provide the refuge and peaceful companionship that they are seeking? You bet it is. Part of reflecting God's character as image bearers includes reflecting God's heart for children, which you see everywhere in the Bible, God caring for the orphan, God caring for those most vulnerable among us, and Jesus, remember, who is the perfect image of God, proved Himself a servant of all by welcoming the little ones into his arms. He is the image of the invisible God. If we're above serving children, we cannot follow Jesus. If you're without children, look around the room and notice. Your children. Look around the room and see the parents you can encourage in the gospel as they try to raise children. We need your help and your gifts. One of the most encouraging friendships I've had in my parenting has been with a single brother. He's in Richmond right now getting training. Andy. Jesus and Paul never had children, nor were they ever married, but that didn't keep them from speaking into the lives of parents and children. Parents and children need everybody in this room. Whether you're still married and happy, still married and doubtful, whether you've experienced divorce, separation, or the death of a spouse, or whether you've always been single, if you are in Christ, you're not alone in nurturing your children in God's truth. God purchased the body of Christ to help watch your children in the pews and to sit with your children in Sunday school and to cry with you for their salvation and to sing of their conversion and discipline them in love and care for them with the gospel of God's grace and provide aid for you when your family is in need. God's family is much bigger than we tend to think. So we are not alone in this, parents. That doesn't mean the church replaces the parents' role in raising their children in the Lord. But it does mean that we minister alongside each other since we are family and our needs are each other's. And so we find in ways to intentionally equip and encourage and pray for and sharpen and correct and teach and listen and counsel and give and so forth. I want to look at one last truth before Michael comes and puts some of this theology on the ground for us. God is worthy to be praised not only among all peoples but across all generations. God is worthy to be praised not only among all peoples but across but also across all generations. Psalm 71, verses 14 to 18. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So he got them in his youth, and he's still proclaiming them. So even to old age and gray hairs, get this, grandparents. Even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Your power to all those to come. Old age is for proclamation of the Lord's deeds to the next generation. Psalm 145, verses 1 to 3. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. You see, God's infinite worth never changes from generation to generation. He is always supremely glorious and worthy of our praise and adoration. He deserves exclusive worship from every generation that He creates and sustains. And we know, just from reading the storyline of the Bible, that God does save people from every generation. Sometimes He saves them young, sometimes old. But they come from every generation. Even through the most desolate times, God still preserved a remnant for Himself. And one day, all of that remnant from every age whose bodies now lay in the grave, God will raise them from the dead and bring them into His cosmic city temple, so that together they might enjoy making much of God forever. So let us labor as parents, and let us labor as a church, and pray together that God will be pleased to save the next generation sitting with us today, so that they too will join us in the enjoyment of making much of God forever.